Hey, surprise, we have a new episode for you today, one you were not expecting. Boom, it wasn't on Facebook, it wasn't advertised, it is an interview, a bonus interview for you today. And I am so pleased to be able to drop you this little surprise. I know we have a regular episode coming out in a few days. You don't have to remind me. I still have to start on that. Anyways, but why not give us a little bonus episode? I myself am traveling to the Called Convention. It's in Lexington, Kentucky. It is an NAD thing where they gather pastors and other admin from across the division. We usually meet right before general conference session. Well, general conference is over, but we're still going to meet. And so I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be speaking about podcasting there. So if you happen to be there or come on by, stop by the seminar, say hi in the hall. I'm going to be giving out some t-shirts and some other sweet swag. So uh, if I can see you there, that would be absolutely fantastic. Otherwise, just enjoy the interview. Okay. This interview is with a new friend of mine, Gil Valentine. I've read Gil's works for years now. He's a, he's a legend in Avenus history. He's been doing this for a, a really long time. But we have never never talked. Well, I shouldn't say that. I've, I've talked with him. I've gone to hear him speak at, uh, at different events. But I don't think we've ever had a conversation like this. And so at least one that he would remember, right? <laughs> oh, he talks to a lot of people. So anyways... This is my interview with Gil, and I'm super excited to share it with you. It's about his new book, which, as you'll find out, is Ostriches and Canaries. You can pick it up on Amazon. I'll talk more about that at the end of the show. Here's Gil. All right, welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is a bonus episode, a very, very special interview with Gilbert Valentine, who is an Adventist historian. And teacher, he has taught in Pakistan, England, Thailand, New Zealand, Australia, and of course the United States. He has recently retired, although I, I see recently retired being a, a description that's applied to you uh, for like the past five, six years. I saw an article in A Today, I think, from uh, or Spectrum from 2017 that described you thusly as well. But, anyways, I just want to welcome you to the show and appreciate you taking some time to join me here. Thanks for the invitation, Matthew, and I look forward to our conversation. Oh, fantastic. Now, there's something, if, if you guys who are listening don't know anything about Gil, you're going to, here's the thing you need to know, I think. First of all, he's an excellent historian, and he's not afraid to tackle what I would call politically thorny issues. I don't mean he's he's dealing with politics, per se, Democrat, Republican, or, or labor, or whatever. I, I mean that he's dealing with topics that are, are thorny, to bring up in in the church sometimes. And some examples of that would be his book, Prophet and the Presidents. He talks about how Ellen White related to denominational leaders. He's studied how later church leaders would wrestle with and wrestle over her legacy in his his book, The The Struggle for the Prophetic Heritage. Uh, He's written extensively on W.W. Prescott and John Andrews. And now he's back with this book, Ostriches and Canaries. just came out March 2022. It is a chronicle detention between fundamentalist uh, GC President Robert Pearson and his crusade against what he saw as this, this tide of liberalism. Now, that leads me to my first question. Gil, your specialty seems to be on progressive Adventists, or at least those who stood outside of, uh, of this fundamentalist center of power. 
Is that an accurate description of, of some of your work, at least? And, and if so, why is this a point of emphasis for you in your work? That's an intriguing question, Matthew. I wouldn't have thought of myself originally as a historian of progressive Adventism, actually. Probably only in the last little while have I even begun to use the term. I, I probably see myself more as having an interest in theological development within the church, change, change management, <laughs> and conflict management. Um, and I think that grew out of my study of Prescott. When I did my biography of Prescott under George Knight, I didn't know anything about Prescott, but encountered him as a, as a scholar and as one who um, proposed some new concepts to the church, who experienced the agonies of 1888, and, and the theological change occurring there. And uh, someone who believed firmly that we ought to get things right, that mm. errors ought to be corrected. And what I learned from that study was that Prescott um, was criticized severely by a very conservative faction in the church. People who resisted the idea of change, people who resisted the idea that things needed to be corrected, and as Willie White says, you know, these conservatives like Haskell and F.C. Gilbert and um, Washburn plowed up and down on his back mm -hmm. um, with criticism. And, and he suffered badly, actually, had a nervous breakdown and uh, lost his job as the editor of the review. So what that study really introduced me to was the concept of theological development in the church and the resistance that existed within the church towards that. Then a little later, um, when I was teaching leadership and teaching educational administration, I, I was led into teaching about organizational behavior and caught up with the idea of conflict management and uh, change management, which in fact became very important skills that a, a, an effective leader needed to have. Sure. That led me into understanding the nature and the dynamic of development. The fact that the church had changed, did change. Mm -hmm. Prescott was involved in that. And the dynamic of the resistance. And I think it was an attempt to understand that dynamic that led me into further study in Adventism. And I encountered further case studies <laughs> and sure. examples of it in, in whatever topic I, I kind of turned to. So... And then it was just in very recent times that I discovered in, in Wikipedia an article that someone had read on, Wiki, on progressive Adventism. And I thought, well, that in a way sums it up. <laughs> I, I, love, I love how <laughs> you're, you're this professional historian here. And, and, and I mean, you just the scholar, <laughs> you've got an, got an idea off of Wikipedia, which is just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I want to know who wrote that article on Wikipedia now. Yeah, it, it's not bad, actually, as a summary article of, yeah. of the state of affairs of progressive Adventism. Yeah, but, you know, even when you take uh, John Andrews uh, in your, your just massive biography of him and, uh, you know, just the way that you, I feel like you very delicately deal with the conflict between him and, and James uh, when, when uh, John was a, a missionary in Switzerland. You know, I mean, you're, you're just kind of peeling back the layers of that onion and showing that the nice, soft, 
comfortable story of our history, you know, where all of these guys are heroes and yeah, we know they're imperfect, but they're all heroes, you know, they're all they're all legends in adventism and and they deserve uh I don't know, our highest regard and, and you know, you're 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 kind of peeling that back a little bit and saying, let's let's look closer at these relationships between people. Yeah. They're they're not quite as simple. No. They're not quite as simple. Uh, and they're just like us, right? And they have different ideas of how the church should be run. And they're, and, you know, that shouldn't surprise us, but it, but I think it does surprise some people when you, when you see this. And I, I suppose for some people, that's a very uncomfortable experience. I have a, a mantra that uh, goes, the church has, has sold a version of its history that follows the travel brochure format. Mm. You know, blue skies, fluffy white clouds, <laughs> no, no storms, no rain. Everything's always perfect. But in fact, you know, the travel brochure version of Adventist history is not realistic. There, there are real conflicts, real disagreements and, and mistakes made and people get, get hurt because we are real people. Yeah. And I guess my, my ambition, my goal is to help the church understand that real people, living people, uh, are the people that make up the church, and those are the only people God's had to use, available to use, with our flaws and with our, mm. our limitations. And when we understand that, man, he can use us. Sure, sure. Yeah. I can definitely sympathize with that. I, I, I share that with this with this podcast. I mean, we want to just tell the truth mm -hmm. about things that happened. This is not about wrapping it up with a bow nicely for people. Um, but do you think that the travel brochure version of Adventist history is is useful? Like, do we need? Are we capable as human beings, as a as a diverse religious community, are we capable of of kind of holding on to a carefully nuanced, uh, you know, meticulous history where it shows kind of the 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 humanity of of the people involved? Or, or do we just kind of naturally gravitate towards the brochure because we just need something simple, something that makes us feel better, something we can work with? Yeah, I think the travel brochure does have a have a role. It attracts us to go places. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, mm. it, it, it does appeal to us and it, and it simplifies and idealizes and, and provides motivation for us to inquire further. Mm -hmm. But... We can't live with it forever. You know, it, it's an inadequate explanation of the phenomenon of reality. So it has a function, yeah, but a limited function, I think. Yeah, and I suppose just to take the analogy further, once you arrive at the destination advertised in the brochure, you invariably find that it's a lot different <laughs> than what you imagined, right? Yeah. Because they took the and best angles. Be disappointing. It can be yeah. disappointing, but it can be very enriching. Yes, actually. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And if you cling to the travel brochure while you're there, I, I think you're going to be missing out on the experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to embrace people, how they live, yeah. Yeah. what they Absolutely. say to each other. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm I'm holding. I know the people who are listening can't see this. I'm holding ostriches and canaries here, and you you are focusing on these years, 1966 to 1979. Tell me what's what's interesting about those years. Why did you pick these this this period of time to study? Yeah, I had originally envisaged just an article, a short article on the period. And the reason for that was that I had been commissioned to uh, write the article on Glacier View mm -hmm. and on Palmdale for the New Adventist Encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. 
And I had been doing quite a bit of research on the background of that. In the process of, of researching that, I encountered Cottrell's article, A Decade of Obscurantism, in which he makes the point that Glacier View was the result of a, a long period of, of suppression of discussion. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so that was part of the background. And then I was researching Pearson's correspondence um, to try and find out some of the deep background that led up to the Glacier View conference. And as I was reading that correspondence, I kept encountering this, this, con this concept of liberalism, creeping liberalism in the church, um, fear of, of intellectuals in the church, this new breed of Adventists, <laughs> intellectuals, and um, the number of times that those expressions came through the correspondence that I was reading in preparation for that article for the encyclopedia said to me, there's a story behind this that needs to be explored. Mm. Mm. And that led me into trying to understand why the terminology appeared so often in Pearson's correspondence. That led me back to, to this whole understanding of fundamentalism, where it came from, and what was the liberalism that uh, Pearson was frightened of. And the article <laughs> grew into a book. Um, <laughs> I, I had also written a couple of articles on, on Ford, trying to understand his role in Glacier View that were published in Spectrum. Um, and it was really going back and trying to unpack the background of that. And so I discovered that these issues really crystallized in 1966 when Pearson was elected president. Mm. And they kind of came to a, a, a climax in 1979 when he resigned because of ill health, because of the stresses that he encountered over the change that he was in, was encountering in the church. Yes. So that's the yes. background of the, of the book. I see, I see. I love how it started with an article uh, idea and, and it ended up 450 pages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a problem. <laughs> it's not like you just lengthened it by 50, yeah. 60 pages, you know. <laughs> but man, it's an interesting read. Jim Longus told me just, uh, just this last weekend that he began reading it Sabbath afternoon, couldn't put it down until he finished 10 o'clock Sunday morning. Oh, wow. And then wrote me a letter saying thank you. So, wow. Yeah. So I, it is I, an interesting read. Yes. <laughs> I've actually had a couple couple road trips where my wife's been driving and I've just torn into it. And it's one of those books where I start on page, let's say, 50, and then I look up again and I'm at like 120. And, <laughs> and I'm not aware of the time passing. I mean, it's just it's so engaging. Yeah. It, it just drawing you into these stories with these with these people. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in a sense, it's it's almost and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's almost like the same story happening over and over and over again because like it doesn't get resolved and I think that's that's where I want to go with this at some point also. It's because the issues in this book are still not resolved, I feel. Yeah. Uh you know, you have these you have these familiar themes here where 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 church leaders are wanting to see loyalty from yep. various professors and and thought leaders and you know, wrestling over the age of the earth. I mean, these are things that still pop up at general conference sessions. Very current. Yeah, and that, that's what makes the book relevant, I think, because yes. the ideas are still with us. Yes, you know, the problems are still with us. Yes. Now, now you note in here that Arthur White was concerned 
uh, with his experience up at Andrews and some of the things he heard from students uh, that that uh, you know people were saying Ellen White's not really a scholar. She's not really a historian. And, and you know he's he's saying uh, in a report to uh, uh, report to the GC saying then where does that leave Ellen White? You know, if she's not this, and you know, honestly, I heard the same thing at the seminary. I heard a professor when I was there say, well, people always say she's not this, she's not that, she's not that. She's not an expert in these things. So what is she? I just, that strikes me as such a perennially interesting question. And it's like, we're still wrestling with that question 60 years later, or nearly 60 years later. Why do you think we have a hard time addressing a question like this in the church? Like, are we ever going to solve this? Uh, I agree, uh, Matthew. It, it is a perennial problem, and it concerns the nature of her authority um, and the nature of her inspiration. Um, and it's a continuing problem. I think we're, we're in the problem because in the part, well, for, for several reasons. Um, maybe I can unpack one or two here. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, when Ellen White has been attacked, by those from outside the church or by those who were in the church and exited the church, people like Canwright, um, Brinkerhoff and others, um, they, they attacked her because they saw problems with, with her authority and with her inspiration. Mm -hmm. And we were operating in a binary mode. She was of God or of the devil. Right. You know, it was a very simple thing. You, you just had to decide that. And she herself encouraged that because that's how she understood that the source of her authority was of God or, or of the devil. And so recognizing the charisma in her as a genuine charisma and recognizing that God did use her in a special way, we, we were drawn to defend the divine side of her work and it was kind of an all or nothing thing. Mm -hmm. We found ourselves defining, uh, not defining, defending her authority. And, and so slowly over time, we were not able to nuance that very well. We yes. just had to defend her authority, and slowly she got placed on, on this pedestal, which grew higher and higher. Um, the, the, another part of the dynamic is that in order to underline her authority, and that was important because why else would you take what she said as, as true? Mm -hmm. Why else would you comply with what she advised in health <laughs> or in, in church decision-making, in order to underline that authority, we became increasingly reliant on the dictation metaphor hmm. that, that we found helpful to, to just explain her authority and the nature of inspiration. And she herself nurtured that in ways. I mean, she wrote a letter to, to her son Edson, saying, Edson, the Spirit of God has dictated this letter to hmm. you through me. Mm -hmm. And you need to obey it. You need to comply. <laughs> so it was a shorthand way of, of underlining the authority. And as, uh, as uh, Dennis Kaiser mentions in his book on Ellen White's writings and her work, um, Adventists didn't get into the theory of verbal dictation or inspiration we said, no, 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 we don't go down that route. <laughs> but nevertheless, we use the language of verbal mm. dictation. And we use the language, the metaphor of verbal dictation. And slowly in uh, vernacular Adventism, that became the dominant motif. And, and 
If that was the dominant motif for understanding her, her inspiration and her authority, then she was inerrant. Yeah. And, and couldn't make mistakes. And it was dangerous to point out mistakes. And, and so we got into this double bind in a way. Sure. Um, that sure. it's I, a perennial I, I, problem. And we, we eventually learned, I think, to cope with some of the peccadilloes in her life. <laughs> she ate o- oysters, for example. Yeah. She got grumpy with her husband. Yeah. <laughs> she got the number of windows wrong in a certain building. You know? Yeah, yeah. But it's been very difficult to come to terms with the fact that this flawed instrument in Ellen White, with a genuine charisma, could perhaps have gotten some larger issues wrong, mm-hmm. or maybe have expressed some theological concepts in, in an inadequate and inappropriate way. It's dangerous to actually say that, but yeah, that's, that's the basis of the perennial problem, because uh, we, we need to come to that. And one, one last thing, you know, we, we come to, to change slowly. In this last book by the BRI on hermeneutics, mm-hmm. John Peckham has this last chapter on Ellen White and her authority. And he's brave enough in that chapter to suggest that Ellen White's authority is not magisterial. That mm-hmm. is, it's not canonical. It's ministerial. Well, 40 years ago, when a certain teacher in the church suggested that her authority was pastoral, not doctrinal, yep. that was heresy. Yep. <laughs> but now, slowly, even the BRI is able to concede that point, at least. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think we we see how some of this uh, is evolving. It, it, to me, it seems that kind of a catalyst for some of these these uh, this perennial problem with with Ellen White's authority is that these increasingly educated intellectuals in the church, with the professors and so forth, you know, they're getting their PhDs from the University of Chicago, from Oxford, from wherever. They're they're coming up against problems, and, and you know, for instance, the age of the Earth is at six thousand years old. Who's the author of Hebrews? Ellen White says says Paul, and and what do you do? Do you take that as her just repeating what she had heard in her lifetime? It, it wasn't meant to be authoritative answer to that question. It's just what she heard. It was what was commonly believed in her circles, mm-hmm. or do you take that as an authoritative statement that we can't contradict? And and so as we're learning some of these things about the age of rocks, about the authorship of the Bible, it's it's kind of forcing us to confront the fact that Ellen White had a different position, seemingly, depending on how you want to interpret her statements in these regards, seemingly had a different position on these things. And so what do we do with that? How do, how do we reconcile that? And, and there's no end to those, those no. questions, right? It's not just no. two things. Uh, no. We just increasingly keep following, finding some of these things, and, and, and we don't know what to do with them. And the longer time goes on, the more I think we will find because sure. <laughs> because new situations arise and new facts of new knowledge is discovered, um, and and we're just going to continue confronting those those kinds of things. Um, I I've been intrigued that um, you know even even the wider state folk themselves back at the time of 1914, just before she died we're prepared to say her authority is not exegetical. Mm-hmm. She doesn't tell us what the scripture's meaning is. Her authority is hermeneutical. And and even the wider state folk would argue that, but only to themselves. 
Ah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it, that concept never got out. If that concept had been more widely accepted in the church, we would have avoided a lot of misunderstandings. Yeah. And, and the pedestal problem wouldn't have occurred, I think. Yeah, yeah, perhaps not. Uh, you know, I think, though, that sometimes these these principles that we assert, uh, you know, I, I uh, somebody was just repeating something Merlin Burt was saying about about Ellen White and you know, I, I think we all agree with them in principle, but then when you get down in the mud of wrestling with specific things she said, you know, like what what do you do? No one no one feels comfortable. I shouldn't say nobody, but a lot of people don't feel comfortable re, you know, reading her writing that Paul wrote Hebrews and then saying, Well, she didn't she didn't mean to be authoritative on that issue. You know, like because once you start rationalizing, and I think that's some of the, the the conservative response we find in your book is once you start saying things like that, where do you stop? Where do you stop? And and the issue there is what what's the relationship between our reason, rationality, mm-hmm. and understanding facts, and the authority of the spirit speaking to us in, in ways that we accept as truth. I mean right. it's a delicate balance. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I think part of it is definitely uh, just because of the way Ellen White wrote, I mean, she she tended to write fairly, like you know, in fairly fairly authoritative style, regardless of whether she had a quote unquote "thus saith the Lord" or not. She tended to write very confidently, very certainly about about many things, and that tends to give the impression that there was a reason for that confidence, some kind of divine, uh, you know, revelation behind it. She she was a powerful revivalist preacher. Mm-hmm. An evangelist. Yes. And and the, the reason for the success of evangelists and revivalists is their certainty. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their, their clear-eyed view of this, this is time for decision. It's right or wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and that, that's, that is a, a mark of her effectiveness as a, as a preacher and a leader, I think. Yes. With its downside. <laughs> sure. Yes, definitely, definitely. Now, you know, you're using these terms in this book. There's the term progressive. We we've talked about that already. We've talked about fundamentalist. That's a that's a big word right now, in in uh, Avena studies, and uh, it, so I want to I want to try to disambiguate between these terms a little bit. In your mind, and the way you use the term, is there a what is a what is a progressive Avenist, or what is a difference between a fundamentalist Avenist and a, let's say merely a conservative Adventist? Yeah, that's that's uh, where on the continuum do you draw the lines between fundamentalism and, and liberalism? Right. Um, I I tried to uh, to understand that uh, use the terms in the way that the sources were using them, um, and maybe if I could simply define what what I understand uh, the sources were meaning when they referred to fundamentalism. Okay. Um, to begin with. Fundamentalism, if we use it to describe the beginnings of Adventism, it is actually an anachronistic term because it didn't come into to use um, until the 1920s to describe a particular point of view and a particular movement. But what really distinguishes, distinguishes fundamentalism as fundamentalism, again, you can look at this on Wikipedia and, and get a an authoritative definition there. <laughs> but the heart of it, the real heart of it, is the concept of the inerrancy of Scripture, biblical okay. inerrancy, and the infallible author- nature of the authority of Scripture. 
And, and really, Adventism began that way. Our historicism, Miller's historicism, and early Adventists' historicism is actually rooted in that concept of, of the authority of Scripture. It's a word-based, I mean, we, we focused really on just word, one word in Daniel 8.14, cleansed. Yep. Um, our state of the dead, our understanding of the Sabbath, seventh day, not first day, are all word-based, solidly rooted in this, fun, this um, infallible, inerrant, Scripture does not make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and uh, as Mark Knoll suggested, and I, I, I cite him in the book, Mark Knoll, the evangelical, um, says that this is also the, the source of uh, Darbyite futurism mm. or Darbyite um, historicism. Mm-hmm. Same, same root. And that the critical presupposition of that is inerrancy. Mm. Uh, Adventists are no, no different. So when we come to 1883 and we try and define what inspiration means <laughs> and we encounter Ellen White needing to make mis- needing to be revised, commas and capitalization, mm-hmm. misspellings, we dare not change the sense. Right. And that's the statement. We can change grammar, but we dare not change the sense. But if you're changing past tense, to future tense, you've changed the sense. Yes, yes. And, and so our definition, even in 1883, was inadequate, even as we accepted it as a way of understanding Ellen White's inspiration in comparison to, to Scripture's inspiration. Yes. So that's what became the issue in the 1920s. Fundamentalist, and, and the root of it, again, Second Advent, Resurrection of Christ, um, an objective view of the atonement, all were rooted in this concept of an infallible scripture and an error-free Yes. Um, so you're saying that maybe a conservative Adventist could could accept a different understanding of, of inspiration and still remain conservative on a host of, of religious issues, but a fundamentalist... Yeah, fundamentals is most defined by this verbal inspiration, this this yeah. deep concern for inerrancy. And even today, you know, we, when people define fundamentals, they say the heart of the issue is a plain reading, literalistic view of Scripture and a belief in a six-day, 24-hour creation um, read read literally. That That's that's the, the, the litmus test or the, um, the iconic issue. That defines fundamentalism, even today. Yeah. Yes, you know, I I think uh, was it was it Marsden who my favorite definition of fundamentalism, and I shared this in a previous episode, is is an evangelical who's angry about something. <laughs> yeah, there's a militant edge to it. Yes, yes. it's not accurate, yeah. I think, but it's it's yeah. amusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I think whenever it's a good rule of thumb that whenever you see people railing against liberalism. They, they probably are a fundamentalist because they, they seem to be oriented in one direction uh, toward liberalism. The, their own self-critique or critique of others on the right is often very, very weak. And this is a point you bring out in the book uh, where I think Pearson at one point, uh, he was talking about some of these these groups on the right that were giving him some troubles. But they were his kind of people, I think, is, is yes, the way that yeah, you put yeah. it. yeah. You know, they were they were people he could work with because they're they're basically on the same team. They're just they're just 
you know, a little bit of a thorn in the side, perhaps at that moment. But he can talk with them. They speak the same language, right? They 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 understand each other, and I think that's that's a real big problem, and maybe something that will help some people understand, some listeners understand some of the dynamics today. Because you think, well, look at this group on the on the far right. Look at this group. Why don't they do something about them? Why do they go on about liberals all the time? I think that's a very fundamentalist posture. Yeah, it's is a yeah. kind of a blind spot to the right. Anything, anything beyond where they are is perceived as liberal. Uh, so that's why Pearson would talk about the creeping liberalism. And, and what he was seeing was not really classical theological liberalism. That's not what he was reacting to. Um, yeah. where, where scripture is purely a human book um, and the supernatural is not a part of the explanation of anything. You know, um, that, that was German liberalism high criticism all, all there, but anything on the way towards that, um, Pearson thought of as, as liberalism. And, and really those people that he thought of as liberals in Adventism were really very quite conservative, middle right. of the road, right. <laughs> moderate fundamentalists in a sense. <laughs> right, right. But they're very fuzzy terms. Yes. And it's like a piece of, of Play-Doh. You can shape it to whatever whatever form you want, depending on, on what yeah, you're reacting to. Yeah, they're very nebulous, <laughs> nebulous terms. And, of course, they because they're so poorly defined, they can be easily weaponized Yeah. and, and, and made to mean whatever somebody needs them to mean for this moment. And and this brings us into the part that I of your book, uh, Lion's Share of It, which is truly heartbreaking to me, this, this pressure that Pearson puts on Hamill, on Richard Hamill, who's the president of Andrews University, who's actually the right now the second longest serving president of the university from from its founding as Battle Creek College I believe after Andreasen um and you know and he's this he, he wasn't Hamill is by no stretch a liberal <laughs> you know it's he, he was actually fairly conservative I believe uh starting off but but he feels this pressure from Pearson to to crack down on some of these these quote unquote liberal seminary professors and he ends up having to do this this heartbreaking thing with uh, with Vic with W H Vic, of terminating him in 1968. And and you know in the way you write about this in the book, uh, you you write and I'll quote here: Vic's removal was interpreted in the seminary as a sacrifice of a lamb that Hamill had to make at the altar of the General Conference. End quote. That just breaks my heart because we're talking about people's lives here. Yeah. It, it was an anguishing period, an anguished period for, for Hamill, who, who really felt himself caught between the pressures of not just Pearson, but the pressures of a conservative church and a conservative constituency, and that he had to serve their needs. He, they had appointed him, and he had to serve their needs and, and to, to meet their needs. And yet here he is trying to build a, a university where critical thinking skills are taught, where, where answers are more complex and more complicated than simplistic answers. And uh, he, he felt himself in this, this real dilemma of, of having to meet both sides. Uh, that posed for him, I think, um, problems of integrity yeah. um, that, he, that he had to, to cope with. And uh, not a comfortable position, and and people hurt and injured. 
that the tragedy is that in today's university, even at Andrews, I think, and certainly at other Adventist colleges and universities around, those very things that were being taught in the late 60s yeah. are standard fare and necessary information yeah. for, for students to know today. Yeah. But here we are, we lost those, those very valuable people. Yes, yes, and, and that's something that uh, you note that Richard Ritland, uh, who was a, a scientist, an Adventist scientist, he wrote in the letter about this, when, and he says, uh, regarding the termination of Vic, and, and this, this kind of, it's not just the termination of one person, but this, this mood, this atmosphere that's being created. He says, I fear that there is a danger lest we extinguish candles that may provide glimmers of light when the way is dark and the going is rough. You know, basically, we need these teachers. Yeah, we need these teachers. Like, we're going to need them, these theologians, to help us work through some of these problems that we're facing. And, and, and you know, it doesn't make the problems to go away <laughs> if you fire them. <laughs> no, it doesn't. You know, what are you going to do? It doesn't solve the age of the earth issue. I mean, I, I keep bringing that up because that's something that they were really wrestling with then and, and to a certain extent now. But, you know, it doesn't make it go away. And, and, and there's, there's this incredible pressure. We've talked about it in this podcast before for, for people to prove their loyalty to the church, to display loyalty. And, you know, in your opinion, because you've, you've been teaching for, for some time, uh, in, in different contexts around the world. Uh, maybe you want to just safely answer this with the yes or no question, but I don't know. You're, you're, you're retired, so you can say whatever you want now. Uh, is, is there still a pressure to display loyalty among teachers in higher education? There is, and, and that's um, a problem. Um, I've, I've been blessed myself to have worked under leaders, college administrators and, and church leaders who have understood my pastoral heart and, and mm -hmm. who really have um, been inclusive in their, their framework and, and who have really seen the need for, for people who care for their church and who write in love and, and concern. I think in, in recent times the story of the IBMTE has been an instrument of, of trying to make teachers conform uh, because they've been suspected and, and require declarations of, of loyalty. And let me just interrupt Gil right here to say, if you don't know, the IBMTE stands for the International Board of Ministerial and Theological Education. It is a general conference entity designed to standardize the education, particularly of pastors and who can teach pastors, you know, what are the qualifications and, and, and all of that. So, anyways, back to Gil. And the, and the big issue was, was that the responsibility of the General Conference or was it the responsibility of local boards of governors? Uh -huh. Eventually it's been resolved, I think, to make that a responsibility of boards of governors. Yeah. Um, and and it's, the pressure has gone away somewhat. But the, the, the pressure to require those statements of loyalty uh, are uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, I, the, the, the difficulty is that on an Adventist campus, we are concerned with, with truth and with discovering knowledge, with passing on the tradition. That's an, an important part mm -hmm. of what happens on a campus. Passing on the tradition, protecting it, hedging it about, 
and, and valuing it. Um, but at the same time, there is that tradition to discover new knowledge. When Adventists started universities back in the 19, late 1960s, they were only established to, uh, to pass on the tradition. Yeah. And to, to indoctrinate people and, and to prepare them for the professions. Only as we began to move down that path did we realize that part of that sacred role of the university was also to be involved in research. And whenever mm. you're involved in research, you're involved in discovering new information. Mm -hmm. New facts come to light. And, and our faith of the fathers has to be flexible enough to cope with, with new information, to be able to ex be expressed in the context of new information. Yes. And, and that's a real challenge. We need informed, passionate, committed teachers to help us do that. Yes. Yes. You know, and when you have somebody like Walter Ray, who you, you talk about at the end of the book, um, it's because of the things that he wrote very, very passionately from a very, I mean, it's a, it's a very emotional book in the sense of like it, it, it was personal to him, you know, his, yeah. his own journey. Um, but it just, it's regrettable that it takes somebody like Ray having to publish a book like he did to get church leaders to admit that, yeah, you know, it seems that Ellen White did plagiarize a little more than, than we had, we have previously explained it. And maybe we should study this in, in, you know, <laughs> it's like, why, do, why do we wait until there's, there's a bomb that goes off, you know, before we do what I think we ought to do as a church in terms of, of, of free inquiry into these things and, and, and allowing study into these things in a, in a better context than somebody getting hurt and writing a book. Yeah. A good teacher, a good theology teacher, is a bridge builder. Mm. From, from the, what we know now to what we are learning, you know, building bridges, because change is inevitable. That, that's one thing I've discovered in my ministry and my study of history. We, we've changed numerous times as a church, and, and change can be painful. It generates conflict. But it's necessary because to live is to grow and to grow is to change. Yes. Um, and we've developed theolog theologically. Building bridges into the future is really part of the task of, of a good teacher. Mm. And sometimes because church leaders are afraid of change, they fear it because it disturbs the, the status quo, they tend to clamp down. I mean, uh, Hamill protested to Pearson. Hamill could sense that people in the field even and among his colleagues and, and his teaching cohort were, were talking about things needing to be addressed publicly. Block mm -hmm. it will create a pressure cooker explosion. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the problem. And, you know, I think there are times because discussion is prevented, you have people like, Ray saying to get rid of this blockage, I'm going to have to dynamite our way yes. through. Right. <laughs> you know, but that's destructive. Right. I mean, it doesn't rid of the blockage, <laughs> but right. it is destructive. And but you know, part of the paradox here is that after the Ron Numbers, after the Walter Ray, comes the George Knight, <laughs> who in a sense is able to domesticate the troubling findings that that historians have found. And, and helps to build bridges. Yes. Um, so it would be best if we could avoid having to create situations that needed to be dynamited. Yes. Use yes. that metaphor again. 
<laughs> yes. Well, it's it's like, you know, when we kick this can down the road, at some point, uh, you know, at some point we've got to deal with this. You just can't do this forever. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, you conclude, just a couple final questions here. You conclude uh, by writing, administrators need to achieve a more open environment where the sense of loyal belonging is valued in the church as much as loyal believing, or an atmosphere of trust and security balanced by responsibility nurtures the task of expressing faith and conviction in harmony with known facts. Now, I, I would imagine there's there's probably a lot of teachers out there who would say amen to that. But I want to ask, do you personally have hope that future generations, maybe some younger generations that are alive today, will witness a church where, where that environment exists? Or is it just a pipe dream? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, Matthew. It's, it's a... It's a challenging question. I'm, I'm optimistic myself mm-hmm. because I'm optimistic by nature. Mm. Um, and, and I guess my optimism um, flows out of the fact that, that facts are facts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they describe the complex reality, the phenomenon of reality that we confront. And even though we may be reluctant to acknowledge the facts because they're painful, Facts ultimately, in the long term, I think, prevail. Mm. I mean, there may be people who advocate alternate facts, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and there may be alternate ways of reading facts. So that's true. But yeah. nevertheless, facts don't go away. They, they, they stay. And I think the church will come to terms with that. We've been on a, I mean, this, this is part of our dilemma. We live on the edge of imminence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and there are people who say we don't have time to, to wait <laughs> to, to come to terms with facts. We just yeah. have to deal yeah. with them now. Yeah. But that's a fact that we have to deal with too. The yeah. clock has not stopped ticking. <laughs> that's right. That's a fact that, that, that impinges an ex- existential fact. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm optimistic that the Lord's led in the past. I hope patient, I hope young people are patient enough with us. Mm. Yeah, I can I can stay with that and let me help to make the church a, that kind of a reality. Yes. Now, see the the tricky thing that I I read I read the interview that that Hamill gave with Eight Today about a, a year or some mm. months before his death, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and he said something really interesting in there. I'm going to quote him here. He says. When you are chosen to be an administrator, out of respect for the people that started and built up the institution, you want to maintain it and try to make it stronger and more effective. That tends to make you conservative, he said. And and I think, you know, we, we have some young people, and of course every generation has had their young people who are who are more idealistic and who see problems that need to be solved, but then they grow up and they become part of the system. It, so do you think that Part of the problem that we face in terms of change is it is it ideological in terms of we just need people who who see these things differently, or do you think the problem is systematic that no matter how they see it they grow up they get plugged into this machine somewhere, and 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 then they they kind of instinctively as a result of that want to perpetuate the machine, and that makes change hard. Change is is hard, and and it's. It's systemic. I think the resistance to change, the anti-intellectualism is systemic. 
in the church. Partly, I think, because our most successful evangelists and, and the folk who, who win people to the church understand things in black and white and in simplistic ways and, and they are very effective um, because they call people to decision. Mm-hmm. What we, this is true. The Sabbath is not the first day of the week, it's the seventh. Yeah. Um, and, and it's simple and, and there's no, no complexity about that. Um, and, and they're effective because they, they bring people to decision and many people that become Adventists have come from a process of change. Mm. Lives may have been dysfunctional, may have, life may have been upset and, and sort of not, not very well organized and they become Adventists, they grasp the truth, they settle into yeah. the church and the last thing they want to do is change again. You know, yes. it's stability that they've been seeking. Yeah. And, and yet when they get onto an Adventist campus, they learn that, well, there's more complexity here. You know, yes. reality is more complex and we need to be a little more tentative about some of the things we assert. So Adventist institutions are always going to be the target, I think, right. of, of those kind of criticisms because of the nature of their task. Mm. Mm. So, but we need leaders. My, my burden is that we need leaders who are not just settled on preserving the past, but who are embracing of, of the diversity in the church and of the, the growth and development of the church as something positive, not mm. negative. I mean, part of Pearson's problem that every change he saw as negative and was a sign of the last days, whether it be miniskirts, whether it be long <laughs> hair on men, whether yeah. it be drama clubs on campus or, or intramural sports, everything was, was negative and a sign of the last days. Right. I think we need leaders who have a broader vision. Yes. To, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think those leaders you speak of are going to have to resist the institutional gravity toward merely preserving. I mean, look, I've, I've talked with church leaders, I'm, I know you have, I'm sure you have, who see that there's a certain speaker over here or, or a certain writer over here who's saying things that are uh, apparently harmful, spiritually speaking, to people. But, and I asked them, well, why don't you say something about it? It's not worth the trouble. It's not, right? a, not a mountain to die on. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and you know, and enough people say this, where we just kind of end up with the status quo, and and allows administrators to be outflanked by people like Fortis Dedimore, you know, the the yeah. people who can be hyper certain and everything is super simple. It's black and white, and they can just beat up on on church administrators or professors mm-hmm. all day, every day. <laughs> you know, kind of scoring these rhetorical points because. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they know they won't they won't be fired. There's there's going to be no return fire. Yeah. And and yeah, because it's it's the it's the administrator instinct I think to kind of try to keep a lid on things, not not start fires but put them out. And it is challenging for administrator because they do have to keep in mind <laughs> that the need to keep happy the people that fund the church. Yes. Particularly the big donors. Yes. Know? But to do that without allowing them to have a voice that becomes dominant. Yes. Um, it, I have sympathy for an administrator, having been there myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we, we do need administrators to be not threatened mm. by change and to be, we use the word progressive again, <laughs> yeah. be at least open yeah. to a broader perspective. 
not be threatened by change, but might we say, but but to lead that change. To lead it, yeah, yeah. That's what Make we need. And, and maybe that's the difference between administrator and a, and a leader, and, and hopefully those roles overlap, but they don't always. Okay. One of, one of, the, one of the big requirements for, for leadership in education today is those who lead change rather mm. than manage it. Yes, <laughs> yes. actually lead change. There, there's a true leader. Yes. Yeah. Now I have to ask you before I let you go, you have taken us up to the doorstep of the Desmond Ford controversy here with this book. Is 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 that the next step for you? Are you going to write a book on on the Des Ford thing? Well, there's a step before there, Matthew. That is a book that needs to be written, given all that we now know and the sources that are now available. And it will be a rich book when it's done. Mm-hmm. But I've actually been commissioned to write the biography of Edward Hippenstall. Oh. For the Pacific Press. Um, they're going to expand that series from just pioneers yeah. to significant church leaders. And I'm up to chapter four. I'm still doing the research. But Edward Hepenstall was a, um, he influenced the 20th century Adventism in ways that more, more than any other person, a leading theological voice. And he was a change agent. <laughs> yes. Got into trouble for advocating change. I feel and, like you should call this book Change Agents. <laughs> he was on the way to a Des Ford. He disagreed with Des, but uh, but agreed with him in much. Yeah. Um, so hopefully my understanding of that will also help to lay a foundation for the later biography. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe, well, maybe. No promises. <laughs> well, I, look, it, it needs to be written because I, I think a lot of people, like Des Ford is kind of a, a it's kind of like a ghost to younger generations. I mean, they hear older Adventists talk about it with some some pain or with some frustration or whatever, uh, but they don't really know what happened. Yeah. And, and and we have a, a, a number of people who are living who have personal experience with that whole episode. And and I, I worry that by the time, uh, you know, like how long are we going to wait to talk about this again without fear of, I, I guess, repeating it? Yeah. Um, because I think these stories need to be shared, and, and so he doesn't. So he does. So he isn't preserved in Adventism's collective memory of the next generations as this ghost, as this specter, as this as this controversial thing. Uh, they need to understand what happened. So I, I I look forward to. that. I think the Heppenstall book is actually really great because while we're recording this interview, I actually have a tab open on my um, Google Docs where I have Heppenstall's speech at the 1952 Bible Conference. I have. <laughs> I've uh, I've got it, you know. In, uh, what what do you call it? Transcribed, and then I have the article in the in the uh, Our Firm Foundation book on the you know his speech when it was finally written, and I, I was going through it trying to see what got changed from the speech <laughs> to the printed version, and seeing yeah, if there was anything interesting. Changes. There were some changes. Yeah, but he he was a gospel preacher who understood the gospel from his own existential experience as a young person. Mm-hmm. It infused his life, and it helped to change his understanding of the sanctuary doctrine, and change the church. Yeah, um, and and so yeah, it's an important, important uh, set of developments there. Ah, very good. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you so much for your work on ostriches and canaries. You all, if you want to get it, I encourage you to get it. You can get it on Amazon.com. It's published by Oak and Acorn. And it has a wonderful cover on the front of it of, you can imagine, an ostrich and a canary. And uh, it's a provocative book. 
I hope that you, our listeners, will will take a look at it. I don't get any money for for telling you where to get it. Okay, I'm just telling you as a as a as a fan, as somebody who has enjoyed reading this book, the to go to go pick this up if you're interested in Avenue's history. You will not be disappointed. And I hope you have a free weekend because you're going to be reading it through that weekend. <laughs> so, Dr. Valentine, thank you so much for joining us for this interview. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day in sunny California. Thank you for the invitation, Matthew. It's been a joy to have a conversation with you.